Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome back to the VMP Anthology podcast. I am your host, Andrew Winnestorfer, and we are, of course, talking this season about Miles Davis, the electric years. I hope you've been enjoying the box and you've enjoyed our first episode of the podcast where we talked to Vince Wilburn Jr. about Miles. On this episode, I talk with two guys who were really responsible for this box physically existing. Uh, it's Clay Condor and Steven Anderson. Uh, up first, it's Clay, who handled all of the art direction. And if you've gotten any anthology over the years, you have seen his name in the credits. He is VMP's art director. He's incredible. And this Miles Davis box looks beautiful. And it, it looks as good as it sounds, quite frankly. So in this little segment, I talk with Clay about what he hears when he listens to Miles Davis, the electric years, and also hear about how he came up with the visual styling for this box. So, Clay Condor, you are a co-producer and art director of Miles Davis, The Electric Years. I guess I wanted to talk to you about how this box design-wise sort of came together. And this is a project that you were extremely excited about, correct? Extremely excited, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, these are some of your favorite albums of all time. Uh, this may be my favorite run of albums of any artist of all time yeah right and so i guess when you get the assignment like storf and marcus come to you now more than a year ago <laughs> at this point and we say we're doing the electric years what goes through your mind and then what do you think about design wise as you're putting this together utter disbelief goes through my mind first um just a lot of excitement and what i do first is i listen to every single album of that whole period including the ones that aren't in the box all the live albums from that period even like the remix albums and like things that have come since mm -hmm. um and i kind of just look for like common threads between those and thinking about like how does that music look visually mm -hmm. and i try my best to translate it because they have a pretty distinctive look even if they're pretty different album to album, really. They do, yeah. I yeah. feel like every album does a good job of looking how it sounds. Right. And so we end up with this blue sort of color. Talk about the visual inspiration and how we ended up with what the box looks like. Yeah, so an album that always stuck out to me was Black Beauty. And that one's not in the box, but I think that cover specifically it looks exactly like how I 
hear the music like that kind of it's almost like a thermal look to the photo mm-hmm. and like psychedelic and there's a lot of movement to it because he's kind of repeated on the cover and so i was looking at that cover and there's some images on pangea which is also not in the box but there are these like live images of him that were taken that really capture that feeling of the music and they're all kind of like blurry and psychedelic and colorful and i found out they were from the same photographer uh his name was tadayuki naito um and he shot a lot of the live sets from japan and the film war around that period and he does like so much crazy treatments to the photos and makes them really unique and psychedelic and so i tried to capture that as best as possible um but using a more iconic image of miles with those bug eye glasses and he's just holding his trumpet up mm-hmm. um so we had julia fletcher who used to work with us uh treat that image in a similar fashion we just kind of scaled him down and put him down at the bottom and it's almost like with his trumpet up in the air he's kind of just projecting his name huge on the cover and his name is just kind of larger than life on the cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the thing that you sort of capture with the image is like, you look at some of the earlier Miles Davis art, you know, like birth of the cool where he's like very clear and he's like in the front of the album cover and the music sort of sounds like that, right? Like it's like miles is the star. He's the focus and like he's still the star of the electric albums, but he, you can't see him as clear, right? For sure. Yeah, he yeah. kind of retreats and lets everything else take over. Yeah. Right. And like a fried sort of like ambient weirdness is like all over the albums, basically. Yeah. Exactly. When you were listening to all of the, the material, and I know it, you were heartbroken, especially we couldn't fit a Garda into, <laughs> into the box, right? Like, uh, you know, what What do you hear when you listen to Electric Miles? Why are these records, you know, some of your favorite releases of all time? I hear everything. It's like creativity at full tilt. Dissonant, beautiful, chaotic, minimal, ambient. It's everything all at the same time. And I feel like every few minutes, my expectations just get defied and... I can listen to these albums for the rest of my life, like you were talking about, and just hear something different every time. It's just incredible. Well, and, you know, Stephen and Vince, when I interviewed his nephew, is like the thing that is uh, maybe different about the electric period from early miles is that it's like it's the principle of you're never in the same river twice is like you are different every time that you listen to it. Miles is maybe different in your mind every time you listen to it. And like, you're never having the same experience twice when you listen to these records. That's why I think ultimately it makes it very hard for me to make this season of the podcast. Cause how do you capture, you know, like I think the only way, like I could make this podcast either three episodes like I've done or make it 7,000 episodes. And I, <laughs> I interview everybody that I can talk to about and see what they get out of this, right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody's going to get something completely different. And right. each individual person, like you said, it's something different every time you hear it. Right. 
And that's why I think like, yeah, this is a very special piece. And yeah, your, your design is one of the things that I am most excited about with this is just like, we really, we really went all in on this. And I think you can tell that from, you know, the sound mixing to, to everything, you know, the liner notes booklet by Ben Ratliff, uh, this was a passion project for us at VMP. We all we like everything we work on, but this one is a little, we gave an extra 110% here, right? Like Absolutely, yeah. Now that you know how this box physically looks, it's now time to tell you about how production-wise this one came together. And for that, I talked with Steven Anderson, who's been with VMP for a number of years and is internally known as Eagle Eyes, should maybe be Eagle Ears as well. He, uh, he is the guy who looks at our proofs and listens to every test pressing that you, you get at Vinyl Me Please. Every record you probably have gotten from us in the last three probably four years steven is the first person on staff to listen to it so he is a perfect person to talk to about miles we also get pretty philosophical in this segment talking about what the miles davis albums in this period mean what miles was up to what steven hears when he hears them uh this one goes a little bit broader than just talking about how this box was produced but i think you guys will really enjoy that so here's me and steven anderson you are a producer of of the miles davis the electric ears box can you tell the people what part of the box were you personally responsible for because you had a pretty big hand in making this one yeah i guess in producing i kind of touch every aspect of things relating to the physical box whether that is really hands-on or or even just like reviewing proofs like uh clay's superb design for this i got the the great pleasure of looking at the booklet five six seven eight nine ten times um, really looking at the box and you know zooming in 700% to see if everything is spelled correctly. So I, I know the box and all the contents within at a at a level of detail which nobody should have to know other than myself. Yeah, real sicko mode stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and early on, you know, before we even really get to like this is how the box is put together. I think with with all the projects that we do at VMP there is a very high bar. And I think we are always trying to meet 
the greatest expectations for you know any project whether that is sound quality whether that is um making sure that certain tracks are presented in a certain way like really keeping a certain level of faithfulness that ante is always raised for anthology that that is sort of like our high watermark of here is the most of our energy the most of our quality going into one package and then to do miles davis like a miles davis electric anthology is it was a little bit nerve-wracking at first to hear the project come across the board because it's like this is the this is the project that is going to be the most closely looked at by uh record nerds like myself and people that know their shit and they know when something is not right they know details that i i could never even fathom and, and i've I've loved this music since I was a teenager. And yet I found along the way, there were so many different things that I learned about, oh, you know, uh, Bitches Brew was the last to have the Columbia, like, 2i logo. I'm it, Maybe I'm screwing that up. But like, y- you kind of learn all these things along the way as you're really trying to get into what is the ultimate form that this can take w- with things like um, Jack Johnson. Which cover do you use? Like, what album art do you use? the illustrated version with Jack Johnson on the cover or the version with Miles Davis on the cover. Um, if it's the Miles Davis version, do you put the paragraph that he writes about Jack Johnson on the, on the cover or not? And so you kind of like, that was sort of how I started the project of, okay, some of these records like Bitches Brew has, has not gone out of print and for good reason. Others like Big Fun, Get Up With It, uh, haven't really been reissued on vinyl that much in the modern era. And so you're kind of having to really dig into these records that don't have the same level of uh, documentation maybe around them and trying to figure out what is the best, most correct, most faithful, most, you know, whatever way to present this music for people that will be looking very, very, very closely at it and listening very, very, very closely. Yeah. And I think I said it when we were, you know, in the planning and launching phase of this, that like, we will never do a bigger artist in anthology like i have hard time believing the beatles will ever give us a call and say like hey you guys want to do a box set of of our studio albums like that's just never going to happen like that's the only band that i can think of in terms of like magnitude that is bigger than this yeah 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 (laughs) um and so you know you make all of these choices i mean for jack johnson it's the 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 cover with him on it do we know why that's the that's the approved version by miles at this point right yeah and you know there isn't always a strong reason why or why not like ultimately i think we had the choice um my understanding and and you'll have to forgive me like these decisions were made like a year ago and i'm just Uh now like (laughs) refreshing myself but it's a miles record like really at the end of the day it's a miles record and it's not as like it is, yes it is the soundtrack but you know who has watched that movie recently like the soundtrack is sort of has sort of outlived the movie it is very much a miles davis album even if it functions as a soundtrack so i think like even on that level that's sort of why we chose it i think that artwork is frankly just more iconic than the uh the illustration so some of it does come down to just like what feels right Mm-hmm. Uh, and then being able to back that up with maybe historical examples of, oh, Miles always preferred the cover with him on it. So yeah, I think he mentions it in his book or something. We have like another factoid for why we went with 
the win with him on the cover. But now I I also cannot remember <laughs> that fact. Because, yeah, that's like, I guess that's a, gl- a glimpse behind the curtain is that, like, a lot of the decisions you're making about this stuff is, like, even longer than my, you know, as long as my, like, hey, we're doing this. Like, the decisions you guys make happen a year. To, I mean, a, a year is, a, like, a rough estimate. Sometimes it's 18 months. But, you know, in the case of Impulse, it's 36 months or whatever, you know? Like, yeah, it's, you know, all the decisions get made forever ago. Yeah. And and for so many of them, you know, they're not exactly documented super well because it's it's just kind of an in the moment of like, all right, what feels the most right? In that moment, it's like, can I explain this decision of why we are using this album cover or maybe making this um, slight change here and there like I, I run into this a lot in classics especially where you know jazz records specifically have these really flowery extensive liner notes and the original writer might have misspelled a musician's name and when we're reproducing that i, I always kind of go well should we update it so it's the person's correct name or is it more correct to leave in the typo and so it's these kinds of things you know you don't see it as much on miles davis records because they've they they were very carefully looked at um, in a way that. But a Yusef Latif album that one of four Yusef Latif albums on Riverside in one year was not getting the same arduous fact checking as a yeah. Miles Davis record. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, the the bar is is about as high as it can be. Yeah, and audio chain wise, this uh, you know one of the decisions that made this end up taking longer, costing more, uh, you know, is that this is all analog. This is tape transfers. But, I, you know, one of the decisions we sort of looked at was, like, some of the sides here on these albums are 30 minutes or 26 minutes. And looking at trying to, like, you know, because conventional wisdom is no longer than 22 minutes at this point. So, like... Yeah, I guess talk through us deciding like, okay, we're going to have to be okay with a 30 minute side here because this is not, these are 30 minute suites. These are not like, you know, a 30 minute side with eight different distinct songs, right? Exactly, exactly. So for something like Get Up With It, which has two sides that are uh, two single song sides that extend past 32 minutes. And like, if you know, anything at all about miles's electric period it is loud there are so many players there is so much sound going on he loved him madly as maybe a little more of a quiet track in comparison to his other work but at 32 minutes it still stretches well beyond the conventions of like what a side of vinyl should hold and the content generally doesn't help being this brash loud uh very full sound that miles was known for um, so at, at the very beginning, we were kind of parsing it out of, well, is there a world in which we break up some of these like extremely long sides of Get Up With It? And, you know, it's funny, like I look at records that did, uh, I think at Film, no, not at Film, East, Eat a Peach, where like Mountain Jam is split into two sides because it's a 33 minute song and they released it that way. But for us to try and make a decision in 2022, 2023 of, oh, where should a fade be on He Loved Him Madly or Calypso for Limo? That is that is not anyone's call. 
Right. Um, Teo is dead. Yeah. Miles <laughs> is dead. Yeah. Yeah. I am not Teo Macero. There is a reason why this was released as a 32 minute side um, back in the early 70s. If they could do it then, someone can do it now. So ultimately, we had to go, okay, this is the best way forward. It's going to be really challenging for whoever cuts this. There's a reason maybe why Get Up With It hasn't been released on vinyl too much. And so when we went to Ryan with it and we said, hey, we want these to be original. Like we we want the same, you know, we want this to fit the kind of cut that it was before. Can you do this? And of course, Ryan, like just a music lover in general, but he has, a, who doesn't have a special spot in their heart for Miles's electric period? Mm-hmm. Um, he was just so gamely like, yes, let's do this. Like, I will make this the best possible cut I can. Will it be challenging? Absolutely but I think I can do it. And he absolutely did. The proof is in the pudding. These records sound fantastic. I mean, for, you know, I, I know some of these sides, like the back of my hand and to hear them in, I won't say a radically new light, but they bring out details that, you know, I had never heard before. And so beautifully done. It, I was especially excited listening to get up with it to see like, okay, how did they like how did Ryan pull this off? Because you take it, you take it out of the sleeve and it is just groove uh-huh. all of the way to the center label. Right. But to put it on, like I didn't notice any lowering of volume. I can't hear any of the compression. It sounds so beautiful. Like it was just it was just made to be that way. Um, so I, I think that everything came across so wonderfully, um, despite the challenges. Yeah. You know, Vince said to me when I interviewed him in San Francisco that like later in his life, he realized that Teo Macero had to have just been like a a human being pro tools in order to to, to do what he did back then. And then you, you hear that there are 33 minute sides that, you know, that Teo is the one literally cutting the tape uh with scissors and like you know like you hear that and it's like yeah okay they're really he had to have he was a madman you know he was like the guy doing that by himself and yeah and it does it's interesting like that listening to this whole period together and really understanding teo macero's role understanding you know that yes miles would maybe cut this big session and then teo would basically have creative control to remix it essentially and to still land on, okay, yes, I know the limits of vinyl. I know this music is loud and brash and full. However, I am still going to edit this into a 32-minute side. Columbia, you know, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Um, I think it shows just that much intentionality. It, it really shows Miles's spirit, in a way, of, of the period of, like, I'm going to do what I want, and it's going to work, despite what everyone thinks, and that you know that is still ringing so true today in in this form for sure and so you are the person arguably uh i mean i think actually inarguably you have listened to this more than any person like the people are listening to this right now are getting this box and by now you have listened to the albums in this box multiple times to make sure that the test pressings and the, all of that stuff sounds incredible. When you're listening to it, what, what were things that you heard that you like think people should pay attention to? And that can, I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be test pressing related, but it, you know, like 
as I say in the intro of this season of the podcast, like you could spend your life listening to this. So I'm curious, like talking with you, Clay, Marcus, what do you hear when you listen to these records? What What is the thing that like you really grab onto when you're listening to this stuff? I think what's really interesting about the Miles box, um, and especially if I'm taking it in light of the other anthologies we've done where we're not highlighting maybe the sound of a record label or the spirit of a record label over the years or something like Willie Nelson where you're charting an entire career from you know the 1950s, 1960s all the way through the modern era to laser focus in on one artist in a very relatively short but like very, very productive period and to really start, you know, I, I think by and large, I did listen to the tests in chronological order. They all kind of shipped to me at once. I basically got a gigantic box of three copies of, of each LP. Um, and to really take it, you know, like I said, I, I had known the first five records in this pretty well. Like I spent a lot of time with Bitches Brew, a lot of time with In a Silent Way, but I'd never really spent much time with Get Up With It or Big Fun. And I think really getting to take this anthology experience from proofreading the booklet and listening to these tests. Like I basically do get a dry run of, of the whole thing, like four or five times over. And it was so fascinating. Like, like we were talking about to, to hear Teo Macero's influence and to really understand, I guess I wasn't super familiar with live evil before and to hear what is a live recording being mixed with, um, studio recordings being mi mixed with other scraps from different sessions to hear parts of In a Silent Way. Uh, I think it's In a Silent Way, like being remixed into Live Evil. You know, this music that had already been previous, previously released, like it is very recognizable as a piece of In a Silent Way to sit and ponder what, what does that mean for that to show up on an album that is called Live Evil? Um, to hear bits and pieces of big fun and understand that they were, you know, partially recorded around the same time as bitches Brew. like, what does that say about bitches Brew? But what does that say about big fun? What does that say? You know, for the longest time, I thought that those records were just kind of like grab bag compilations of Miles's. I didn't really understand them as quote unquote studio albums. And I, I still don't know if I would call them studio albums. They feel like something different, but I think there is sort of a, a liquidity like um, there's a mercurialness to Miles's music that, you know, it was interesting. Cause like I said, I listened to all these tests three or four times over to make sure that, Oh, this ticket minute 15 is just on this one disc. It's not uh, on the metal work. So I, I, yeah, I listened to these way too many times, but going through the anthology and then sort of coming back, like having listened to everything through get up with it and then coming back to in a silent way, it is kind of like, that whole like entering the same river twice in a silent way sounds different after you know what came after it after you know where he went and it i think it brings more depth into those earlier albums and vice versa you you can hear things that were maybe being learned or gleaned or the way that miles was working in late 1969 and uh compare that to what was happening in 72 73 74 and it's the same guy it's still working towards the same kind of thinking. And I think what I, what I walked away with most was hearing Miles as a producer, as a visionary, as a band leader, 
more than as a performer or even a composer necessarily um and really kind of wrestling with like who is miles davis as an artist during this strange creative fruitful period and being able to hear you know there are parts of get up with it that are honestly really difficult to listen to there's parts of many of these albums that are are mm -hmm. like physically taxing to listen to at times but they're fascinating because no one was making ambient jazz when he was no one was making like no wave music no one was making like just the kind of noise that he was on some of these records and they sound so fresh even today 50 years after release because it you know whether whether or not modern artists would uh go there that like that influence is so real well and i think uh you know i think an interesting thing that you just hit upon is like these records really are like a double helix they like you know a mobius strip that they like they are like a self-contained period of miles's career and they all are in conversation with each other like the thing that makes them very difficult and also like ultimately very rewarding is that there is no end point and there really isn't much of a beginning point. It's just like in a silent way sort of comes out of nowhere. And then like, it's just on the continuum with these other records where like his earlier career, it's, you know, the timelines between the great quintets and like, you have these, these very tidy years. Like these are the, you know, here's the bebop birth of a cool era. Here's the first quintet. Here's the second, you know, like, all of these these eras are very linear and then this is like a, a roller coaster loop that like then comes and then it's like back in the 80s he's back to like a linear thing is like he doubles back on himself he he is like no longer he's pushing jazz forward but it's in a loop it's not in a in a line yeah yep i i think that's a that's a beautiful way to put it and and really in a sense like you know far from it for me to try and be a jazz critic here um but at a, like it doesn't sound like jazz it doesn't feel like jazz it doesn't play like jazz it doesn't play like rock or fusion miles's music of that era really is just music it, it is like just pure creativity and spark and passion that it, it sort of transcends you know trying to talk about genre for any of these records is is just kind of besides the point yeah. Yeah. And it makes me wish, you know, you, you read, you know, in his biography and you hear that like he was listening to Stockhausen and that's how this all started. And you really can't listen to much Stockhausen because so much of Stockhausen was just like him with a tape loop machine, you know, in an art museum in Berlin. And, you know, Miles somehow gets the reel to reel to be able to listen to it. You know, like, like you, you, the thing that is, is like any of the precursors to this are like gone. And so that's why it's so exciting because it really is like it's, you know, the the alien ship in that movie Arrival. It's just like it's here and it's like from nowhere, but like it feels familiar. Right. And that's yeah, that's the crux of why this box exists and also why I am not trying to talk to a million jazz jazz critics on this because I just, yeah, I don't want to chase my tail for multiple months and multiple interviews at this point. Like I just want to revel in the fact that, holy shit, there's a spaceship in a field, you know? Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. And that's at a point that's all you can really do is just kind of sit back and marvel that this music exists and that it, it is, it just is this music mm -hmm. is, and it, it always will be in a way that, you know, um, jazz of that era didn't always wear so well. Um, yeah. When you say fusion and then you think of like, you know, the, the stuff that uh, the weather report ultimately did where it sounds like, the antecedent to like chill wave. It doesn't even sound like jazz. It sounds like guys playing like water park theme music, uh, you know, before water parks are really like a, in a thing. Right. Like, and yeah. And then you listen to this and it's like, what the fuck, you know, like compared to, compared to what, you know, a weather report record would eventually sound like. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it is kind of mind-boggling to think of everyone that was in Miles's orbit of that period, you know, Keith Jarrett, Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, like all of these performers. Jack Dejanette, like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, Gary Bartz, like all of these um, people that were just sort of coming up and coming into their own as, you know, solo musicians. And then to hear the, how that influence of, you know, whether they were with Miles just for a few years or whether they really stuck through that entire period with him you can see that in their output at the time and and right after that even if they were playing fusion music uh you know quote unquote there is there is a certain halo effect there is something that they they seem to have taken away from miles as maybe a band leader or like i don't know they weren't just going into like cut records so that they could have something on shelves in a few months like that whole era, that whole orbit. And then, yeah, you go out a little bit further and then it's jazz musicians trying to make some money in the disco era, which Miles Davis just basically sat out. He was like, yeah. yeah. He was it. in a room by himself. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out listening to Vince's band play over the telephone before hiring them for man with a horn. Yeah. You're kidding. Uh huh. Yeah. That's uh, people will have heard that by now in this podcast, but yeah, he, he says that he used to put a phone out so that Miles could listen to his band and then Miles would give them notes. And that's how he ended up hit this teenage band became his band for man with a horn was that like Miles was just alone in his apartment in New York, listening to his nephew in Chicago play in his basement. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, talking jazz. You know, we work together, but we don't often just sit and pontificate hits hits blood once type type conversations. Uh, I think I've compared music to his music to a roller coaster and to the movie Arrival. This is like Storf Bingo at this point. So, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Storf. So there you have it. That is episode two in the books. 
Uh, I hope that you're as confounded by the back half of Get Up With It as I am right now. Uh, and I've been listening a lot to the big fun test pressing that I have here. Uh, yeah, it's it's incredible stuff. I, I hope you're enjoying this as much as we all are. I think this is a great a great box for figuring out what you think about music. And so I'm glad that this season of the podcast is really just me trying to figure out what these records mean with a couple of people who I worked very closely with to make these boxes and records happen. So I hope you're enjoying the season. Keep listening. Let's take it to the credits. This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is hosted, written, and produced by Andrew Winnesdorfer. It's produced and edited by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. A special thanks to Stephen and Clay for letting us talk to them for this podcast. Thanks for buying the Miles Davis Anthology, and thanks for listening. And before we go, remember, listen to more Agharta. <laughs>